Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 3rd, 2021. A um, hundred years ago, almost uh, today, June the 2nd, uh, 1921, it was a terrible event in American history, an event which, unfortunately, all too few Americans actually knew about. Uh, however, over uh, the last year or two, more and more people have become familiar with what happened on June the 2nd, um, uh, 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, Joe Biden in this week uh, following Memorial Day has uh, spoken about it. He decried what he called the horrific Tulsa massacre in a speech earlier this week. Um, he, uh, he, 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 he said some injustices are so heinous, so horrific, so grievous they cannot be buried no matter how hard people try. Only with truth can come healing. Uh, we in uh, this show and hopefully in our culture are in the business of truth. Um, and uh, Ruth Marcus writing in the, in the Washington Post, always very good on questions of injustice, particularly touching on race, uh, wrote, uh, I think, earlier today, uh, why we'll remember uh, Biden's speech. Uh, firstly, he he taught Americans something they didn't know. Secondly, um, he spoke about systemic racism in the context of the Tulsa massacre. Uh, thirdly, um, he rejected the idea of a zero-sum game, the notion that when whites win, blacks lose, or when blacks uh, win, uh, whites lose. And uh, finally, perhaps most importantly, he connected the issue of race and racial injustice and voting rights. So uh, we need to talk about Tulsa, and that's exactly what we're doing today in a very interesting way. It's a new book out. It's kind of a new book. It's called The Burning, uh, Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's co-authored by two interesting characters, Tim uh, Madigan, um, who was already the author of, shall we say, a grown-up book, The Burning, a book about the Tulsa Massacre, a book written uh, for adults, um, and a woman called Hilary Beard, who is an expert in adapting uh, work for younger people and for uh, uh, diverse audiences. Um, Hillary's website says, uh, I collaborate with experts and public figures to help them unleash the power of their voice and amplify their message of human empowerment. Of course, um, uh, this book is, is about human empowerment, and we're very fortunate to have uh, both Hillary um, and, uh, and uh, Tim on the show today. Uh, Hillary, perhaps we might begin with you. Um, you joined this project in a sense late. I mean, Tim already written the book. What was your role in, 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 in a sense, rewriting the book for a younger audience? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So as you mentioned, Tim had done a deep dive into this work 20 years earlier. Um, and the Watchmen and the uh, 100th, the centennial of the massacre uh, make the conversation fresh 
as do many of things, many of the things that are happening in our society today. So I was asked to come alongside the work and adapt it for young people. And so essentially what that meant was I uh, cut about uh, maybe a quarter to a third of Tim's book out. I specifically focused on reducing the amount of kind of gruesome violence, which actually happened, um, but it's uh, gruesome and gory. And um, I think you can get the sense of it um, from what is left. So I wanted to reduce that. Um, and, and as I thought about that, I particularly thought about black and brown children who would be reading um, what white people had done to their ancestors and white children who have learned a narrative of the United States that's about um, perfection and, and progress that is inaccurate. So I reduced the amount of violence. I um, added some layers and mostly I layered things in to tell the story um, a little bit more intersectionally. All of this took place as Tim originally noted on uh, indigenous ground. So this was uh, the former uh, Indian territory within the United States. And before that, it was uh, the Creek Nation and the lands of many indigenous people. And I wanted to uh, lift that up a, a bit. Um, because the book is for teens, I uh, resequenced some things so that it would open with the story of a young man, Don Ross, who in some ways turns out to be a hero of this story. Don was a teenager um, and was in his class uh, uh, after school. Uh, working on the yearbook when he first heard about the story. And in hearing about the story, this young man who um, apparently wasn't particularly thrilled by school found what turned out to be his passion in life. And he followed that passion. Um, and now I believe he's into his 70s. And he has played a pivotal role in bringing this story to light. Um, I brought, a, I want to say, a Black woman's ethos to it. I wanted to layer in the stories of women as it was told, it was very much a man's story um, because there was an emphasis on the night of the massacre itself. But I knew that Black Wall Street um, could not have existed without the lives and contributions of women. I also um, built in some things in the beginning to talk about how we got to Black Wall Street to be sure to, to layer in more about the just the brilliance and the in ingenuity of Black people, one generation out of slavery. Some of them came immediately. Well, out uh, of Hillary, let's let, let, let's bring in Tim. Uh, <laughs> Tim, uh, how painful was it to work with Hillary? Did she take out all the best bits from the original book? <laughs> I, well, it wasn't painful at all. She did a marvelous job. Uh, and uh, frankly, but though. This happened because Kate Farrell, our editor at Henry Holt, for for young readers, she came to the story through Watchmen, watching it through her, uh, right. with her it's teenage interesting. kid. You, you, you talked to me about Watchmen at the beginning. I, I became familiar, yeah. like so many other of our viewers, I think, through Watchmen. My daughter and I were watching that. You you said that um, when the the original book came out, The Burning, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 2021, only about three people... Uh, bought the book and then uh, Watchmen changed everything. What did Watchmen do? Well, it changed everything because uh, the night that uh, I had dinner with Damon Lindelof in Tulsa a couple of nights ago, who is the creator and producer of Watchmen, and he said that the, the night of the pilot episode, 
uh, of Watchmen, which was a very uh, popular program and won a bunch of awards in Hollywood. But the night that it would the the pilot the pilot aired, Watchmen wasn't trending on Twitter. Also was trending, and the director told me that she learned that the night the pilot aired that there were five hundred thousand internet searches on Tulsa. Uh, most you know, mo you know most of them I would guess had to do with the fact did this really happen as it was portrayed in this program? And then of course the answer was yes. And then in the press uh, in the press interviews they did uh, around the show. They said that my book was important source material for them. So all of a sudden, that's very nice. So, so Tim, very briefly, um, here's a, a a nice headline from CNN: U.S. marking the hundredth anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. Tell me what happened, very briefly, in, in two or three minutes. Uh, almost a hundred years uh, ago, just over a hundred years ago. A, a young uh, a young African American man was accused of assaulting a young white woman. Erroneously, and most everyone agrees now. Uh, he was arrested. Uh, the cops pretty much assumed pretty quickly there wasn't anything to the charges. I think he was being held uh, for for those few days for as much for his own protection as anything. And it probably would have died out were it not for a headline in the front page of one of the white papers in Tulsa that said, "To lynch Negro tonight." And within minutes of that paper hitting the street hundreds of people had gathered around the courthouse because so, so the newspaper America, acted as a as a as a as a means of of a lynching it distributed yeah, his... I, I don't think that it would have happened without it and you know and and by then um uh lynching was a spectator sport in a lot of america at that time so hundreds of people had showed up in greenwood uh people were saying not this isn't going to happen to us here. We are not going to let one of our own be, be treated this way. Several of the, and several men armed themselves, marched to the courthouse. Many of them, uh, World War I veterans, offered their self to their assistant to protect this guy. A shot was fired probably by accident. Uh, a gunfight broke out. And then after that, the blacks fell back across into Greenwood. The whites marshaled themselves by the thousands at, at strategic points along the border of Greenwood. And early in the morning, they attacked. And though the black people tried to defend property as best they could, they were quickly overrun. And by right, so so Hillary, tell me a little bit about Greenwood itself. It's called the the Black Wall Street. Uh, I've taken some images from the New York Times recreation of. Professional skills, craftspeople. How typical was Greenwood of the African American community? Here's another recreation from from um, from the from the New York Times, and this is a, a very attractive downtown scene with a streetcar and a big hotel. Was Greenwood really the, the so-called uh, Black Wall Street? What was unique about it? Well, it was not unique in the sense that there were many. Um, uh, areas across the United States, many communities across the street, where across the United States, where Black people engaged in commerce, had businesses, homes, families, communities, and people were very successful. So you can think of places like Beale Street or uh, uh, in Memphis, for instance, um, and there were many of them. But it was very significant in the sense that uh, Tulsa was, uh, Oklahoma was hitting oil then. Uh, it was an oil boomtown. 
And so uh, people saw, Black people saw Oklahoma as a promised land, even before the boomtown of oil, and were migrating there in an attempt to create lives of safety, um, where they could get away from white supremacist violence of the South. And so they were migrating to Oklahoma for safety and then to Tulsa because there was oil in Tulsa and the thought that uh, they might participate in the prosperity of Tulsa. And so um, two men uh, uh, bought land and people uh, moved there by the thousands and uh, uh, started a very thriving community. And so it's not unusual that there were doctors or lawyers or professionals in the community, but there were professionals, they were working class, working class people and that kind of thing. But what was unusual was the level of prosperity that so many different people attained in that community, which was a segregated community, segregated by law and segregated in an attempt to uh, be safe from white supremacist violence, which was rampant. Many of the people who arrived there had actually uh, um, had, had survived other race massacres. They were often, often called race riots, but they had come, um, they were uh, chased. I had the sense that black people, many black people during that time were almost hunted and were desperately seeking a safe place. And they found it in Greenwood and circulated their dollars among each other because they were not allowed to uh, participate in white society in Tulsa. And so those many things, including the amount of money that was circulating in the area in general related to oil, helped to create such a prosperous community. Tim, do you want to add anything on, on, on what Greenwood and Tulsa was like in, uh, in, in 1921? And, and indeed, what drew you originally as a historian to this story, this tragedy? Well, I, I, I came upon it uh, by accident because I had, I, I had never heard of it either in the year 2000 when my boss at the, my newspaper in Fort Worth told me about it and wanted me to write a story about it. Uh, and, uh, and so I was educating my myself and I grew up in the upper middle. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about the history, shamefully. Um, but uh, Greenwood was uh, a remarkable community. And I think that that in terms of the factors that led to this, I think that was high on the list because I think that in those days when an African-American was successful, many white people equated that person as being uppity without really any reason to feel that way. I think the jealousy of the prosperity in Greenwood was a really kind of ratcheted up the, uh, the anger and the uh, malevolence of that mob. And especially when these men marched to the courthouse with guns, these black men saying, saying not here. And I could just sense that the, the indignation of the white people in Tulsa saying these people to do this. Um, and the story of African-Americans in this country is when they, they do reach a, a place of prosperity, often they're crushed. It's just kind of there's repeating cycles, and I think you see it in Greenwood, even though they rebuilt and were a thriving community for decades after this happened, without a dollar of white aid, I might add. You know, in the 19, early, late 60s and early 70s, along came urban renewal, and they built the freeway right through this community. Um, mm. So it was uh, to, I think, to become successful as a black person in that era was almost to put a target on your back. And I think that a lot of people in... Uh, I think I think Greenwood had a target on its back in that time. Uh, uh, one headline um, suggests that the Tulsa massacre has been ignored by historians for too long. I mean, I think it would be unfair to call all historians racists. Why have historians missed 
one of the the greatest, the most tragic and meaningful incidents in American history. Either of you, I, I'm not, you know, I'll throw it out to both of you on this one. I mean, I, I guess I kind of know the answer, but I'm curious as to what you both think. Well, I think it's, I think it, it speaks to the effectiveness of the conspiracy of silence. Um, bl black people did not speak of it because they're afraid. White people did not speak of it because they're worried about being prosecuted even decades later and the, and the Tulsa city officials, um, and the Tulsa city officials knew from weeks afterwards that this was a horrible stain in their community. They had a bad PR problem and, you know, quite later for 50 years, no one talked about it. But I think that Tulsa is a metaphor for so many different things. And one of the, one of the ways it's a metaphor is how race history has not generally speaking, the reality of race history in this country has not been taught, has been a secret of its own over the years. And now we've got this debate going on about this pushback from so many trying to keep that, keep that in the classroom. And, and that, you know, it just shows that in so many respects, we've got such a long way to go. Right. Um, uh, Hillary, perhaps you can talk about this debate now. Um, in uh, Oklahoma, um, there are now quote unquote uh, debate about um, uh, whether Oklahoma students should be required to learn about the Tulsa race massacre in school. Um, and of course, uh, well, not of course, not everyone will know this. The governor of uh, Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, has been thrown off a, a panel on education about this. Surprise, surprise, judging from how he looks and, and his political party, it's not really surprising. How much has Oklahoma changed, um, Hillary, in the last hundred years? Well, I'm not sure if I'm equipped to address the issue of how much Oklahoma has changed, but I do want to go back to the question that you asked earlier about Tulsa not being uh, historians not writing about Tulsa. And I think right. that a, that there is a word that's missing from that headline. And um, because many black people know about Tulsa, many black people and many black historians know about race massacres uh, that were, uh, they've been labeled race riot. Uh, inadequately. And so who, do, who often doesn't know or who often uh, does not convey the stories is often white historians. And so I'm not here to say who is racist or not, but I am here to uh, say that very often the story of indigenous people, of black people, of Latinx people, of people of color in the United States is not valued in the same way as the story um, and the narrative of white people in the United States is. And I think that part of the conversation that we're having right now is around who has the right to determine what story is told. And so right. uh, there is this debate about whether we want to continue to tell this um, uh, somewhat uh, uh, sometimes childlike story of uh, we're this perfect country and um, um, and and stories of constant progress and um, stories where we omit multiple histories. So we omit Native American history, we omit African American history, and we tell one version of the history of the white people um, 
uh, who settled this country. And so I think that that's intentional. And I think that that, um, um, I think that the issue is rising now because the country is becoming more diverse and people are requiring a more complex and nuanced and layered understanding of the country. And the fact that we're struggling to tell the truth about who we are, I think contributes greatly to polarization, contributes greatly to the danger that our democracy is in because a democracy requires people to be able to uh, have conversations with people who are different from them, to listen to what they have to say, to consider different perspectives, to engage in critical thinking, to uh, uh, know the quality of the sources of information. Mm. Um, Hillary, so we've had a lot of conversations like this on the show. I've yeah. A friend of mine uh, and someone I've interviewed several times, Carol Anderson, a professor of his African-American history at Emory. I'm sure you know her work. She suggests analogies between Germany and, and America, where America hasn't faced up to its history, whereas the Germans didn't. I found another piece um, from the New, uh, another opinion piece from the New York Times. This isn't by uh, Carol Anderson, but uh, it's saying the same thing. Germany faced its horrible past. Can we do the same? Is there an equivalence? Um, Germany and other countries seem to have faced up to the great crimes of its past, whereas America, as you say, continues this children's fairy tale about how wonderful it is. Yeah, again, I'm not an expert on history, but I think that filling in missing pieces of any type of history empowers us. Um, to understand why we are where we are. It allows us to deepen our understanding of what hap what's, what's happening, um, kind of better understand each other, um, help us make decisions through a lens of what's best for all of us as opposed to what's well, best. This is very collaborative, Hillary, and I know you mean it in a collaborative sense, but a lot of people are very angry about the teaching of this kind of history, aren't they? There are 30, 40, or 30 or 40% of Americans who just deny the whole legitimacy of this enterprise, including perhaps the, um, the governor of, of Oklahoma. Uh, Tim, what's your take on how much Oklahoma has changed over the last 100 years, and particularly on this fight now over education in American schools about stuff like this? Well, it's changed. Uh, it's changed. And it's changed not at all. Uh, it just depends. I think there's a much larger segment of the population now who is not has a hunger and a desire to learn the truth to try to participate in the solution to try to become a more just and an equitable uh, society, but there's still a significant part of the country that views that as a threat and resists it. Uh, you know, we've seen the extent to which they'll resist it in the last five years in ways that would have boggled, you know, would have thought, we would have thought inconceivable 20 years ago. The link, you know, in, in Texas, they're getting ready to pass the nation's most onerous uh, voting rights bill. Uh, uh, and it, state after state that's uh, controlled by Republican legislatures are doing the same thing. Basically, they're trying to trying to uh, trying to restrict voting rights based on a premise that doesn't exist, and just flat out. I mean, is lying this because? Uh, yeah, and I and I get this, Tim, and I'm curious as to Hillary's take on this too. Is this because they're simply not willing to? 
face up to the truth? Is it because they want to deny the truth? Or is it simply because they don't accept the truth that in their mind, American history is being rewritten from the left? Yeah, I don't know if I know the answer to that question, but what I do know is I think that we have a lingering issue, a lingering uh, problem related with white supremacy. And so this nation was uh, founded in, uh, uh, by people who believe that white people were better than other people and should dominate and control them. And I think that even though, what did you say, 40% of the population, you know, 40% of the well, that's population- just a number I picked out. I, I don't have any evidence for them. Okay. People always used to seem to be using this 40% number to describe one angry minority or other in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess what I would say is that for uh, President Biden talked about this yesterday. He talked about this narrative of a zero sum game. And I think a zero sum game narrative is inaccurate. It assumes that people, uh, and in this particular case, people of color are going to compete with white people for something and take something from them. Um, it does not ever imagine, and I think racism often contributes to a failure of imagination. It does not ever imagine that black or brown people might have something to contribute to white people. It does not ever imagine that perhaps some of the problems that white people are facing right now, or this 40% or whatever percent it is that we're talking about, the people who don't wanna have this conversation, I think struggle to imagine that part of what they're struggling with is that they're missing us. And that society has been constructed in such a way that we're unable to contribute um, to a similar degree as many, perhaps most white people are, our gifts, our talents, our skills, our ability, our brilliance, our ingenuity. And that perhaps that one of the reasons that we're stuck is that we keep asking the same old people to solve our problems. People who um, have their own perspective, I'm not saying it's a good perspective or a bad perspective, it's just a limited perspective and we keep asking those same people. And perhaps there are whole swaths, broad swaths of the population who were not allowing to contribute their gifts and talents and not allowing to uh, uh, participate in a way that they can help to solve these problems and uh, contribute their ingenuity to And I think that's part of the reason why we're stuck. And people are having a hard time imagining black and brown people as people who give, not just take. And Tim, some- uh, Tim, as I said, uh, your, your book, The Burning, uh, the, sorry, the Burning uh, is a bestseller. The adult version, I think the, the, uh, the young adult version will also be a bestseller. On Amazon, I noted it's got, I don't know, over you know, 1,200 ratings. It gets five stars. Um, are you educating that 30 or 40%? I mean, are or, or, or the people reading this already uh, made up their mind about all this stuff? How are we going to convince the three or four Americans who don't accept this history to face up to the truth? I don't think, I think that a, this a significant part of this group of people we're talking about are, are beyond uh, educating. I think my, I've always felt the target audience for my book was white people like myself, uh, people of goodwill who uh, didn't know the history and once they learned it, um, their hearts would be changed and they would understand this moment we're in and want to become uh, part of the solution. And I have to say that in the last year and a half, ever since Watchmen, as the book has 
begin to sell so well. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from person after person after person, reader after reader after reader, who, uh, who said, who have said, I had no idea. Basically, their reaction has been exactly what I had hoped for. Uh, it's the it's the moderate white moderate whites um, who are who are willing to become part of the change, but the, uh, the the antecedents of this and and so yes, I think that uh, you know especially in the last few years, the book has been part of this. I, I've come to believe that there are three A's. First, there needs to be awareness. Then there needs to be an apology. And then there needs to be amends. Um, yeah, well, we'll talk about that. But we'll, we'll talk about the, the fixing of this particular crime. You've done this book for kids. You've said that the older generation perhaps is beyond reason. You're never going to convince them. Can there be a generational shift? Are you getting a sense that the kids of the, the older whites who are not willing to face up to this stuff, are they more open-minded? Are, are they the ones who perhaps might end up reading your book in schools? We hope so. The book was created with them in mind, and I think there's already um, evidence that younger Americans uh, are more open uh, around issues of race. They tend to have more diverse friendships. Um, and if uh, uh, my experience in Greenwood uh, over the past couple of days, I had the opportunity to be there and also to spend some time there with him, is Indian, any indication um, a significant proportion of the white people who are out supporting and learning kind of in those public contexts were young adults. And that was really very heartening to me. Tim, any, I don't, any, you know, any I did, thoughts did, on uh, younger people when it comes to well, re-education? Well, I, I wanna, I don't want, I don't think you should dismiss older people. I think that there are a lot of people uh, who, are, who are in their fifties and later uh, who are, who want to understand this. And these are the people that I've been that I'm talking about, and many of the people have been reading my book. I think obviously a big part of the solution is going to be young people, but I, I, you know, and I, uh, I would not dismiss older people at all. I think that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very a lot of the people who who are part of this, uh, ir, uh, this group of people who can't be reached are older, obviously older and white. But there's a whole bunch of white people like myself who. Um, I, I want to be want to be educated and and want to be part of the solution. So I just don't think we can dismiss that uh, that group either. Uh, let's let's end with um, the issue of reparations of, of 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 writing this terrible crime. Lots of pieces in the paper about uh, legal culpability. It's not just enough. Some people argue um, to to recognize the crime. Now we got to. Now we've got to correct it. Um, uh, the next step is reparations, according to Aki and Ola in, in The Guardian. Uh, what are your takes on the issue of reparations uh, and addressing this terrible crime in Tulsa 100 years ago and fixing it and writing it? Well, I think, uh, I, yeah, I liked Tim's A's. What was the first A, apology, right? So President uh, A, I awareness, B, apology, C, uh, amends. Yeah. And amends would include reparations? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, th I, I think it should, but whatever, that has to be part of the solution. You know, you, you acknowledge what you did, you apologize for it, and then you try to make it right. 
in, a, in the best way you know how. And that is a subject that's going to be debated now. But I think that uh, reparations nationally is a very, very complicated question. I think Tulsa could be the kind of the laboratory for doing it because you've got an obvious dramatic event and you can trace the lineage of the people who suffered right down to present day. You can demonstrate how much gener generational wealth has been lost. You can get testimony as to the psychic trauma that they've suffered. And so, you know, Tulsa can, can lead the way in terms of showing us how to make amends here. Uh, but, and, uh, you know, I think it's, they're going to be having these discussions there in the next few years. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, Hillary, uh, any thoughts on, 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 on formal reparations, on paying back the community for the property and the lives that were lost? Um, I, I think I just want to dovetail onto what Tim just said. In Tulsa, um, things are very obvious, and, and it does get complicated. And once you consider that there were uh, race massacres in New York, in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, in Wilmington, Chicago, Wilmington, yeah, I read about one in Chicago, Carolina, four days in Atlanta, various places, including Rosewood in uh, Florida, Memphis, Knoxville, Chicago, Cicero, Springfield, Ohio, Springfield, Illinois, home of President Lincoln, like you can go on and on. And those are the ones that made the paper, right? As I was doing this research, I found all sorts of smaller race, they call them race riots, uh, which is a misnomer, all throughout o Oklahoma. And some of the people who ended up in Greenwood had been chased out of these other communities. And so um, white supremacy has been a problem. It continues to be a problem. And um, when you look at wealth in the United States, the average African-American has one-tenth of the wealth um, of white people. And things like race massacres, but also redlining, right? And the housing policies, various different policies and all, all these kinds of things, which are part of the structure of the United States, um, have contributed to and, it. And Biden seemed to acknowledge this in his speech, right? I mean, this yeah. was something that he, he, he didn't duck. He, he, he confronted it head on. Yes, and I think that that was very important because we've not seen that um, from the Oval Office, but these dynamics are at play and, and our uh, inability and refusal on the part of some people to even address them, much less attempt to solve them, right now are placing our democracy at risk. And I know that you know this, um, we have to deal with the truth to be able to solve these problems. And we need to be able to deal with multiple truths um, and understand how we got here in order to create strategies for the future, including retro, re, uh, reparations, no matter how they look. Well, the truth is in your book, uh, The Burning, Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Re Race Massacre of 1921. It's a really important book. Uh, and I think uh, anyone watching, I don't know how many, I'm not sure how many kids watch this show, but anyone watching with teenage kids who don't know about this, you almost have an obligation to give them this book so that they can understand the truth about America's past, because you can only confront it, you can only face up to it once you understand what happened. I want to congratulate and thank both of you. Uh, you are speaking to me from different parts of the country. Tim is in Fort Worth, um, Texas. Uh, Hillary is just outside Philadelphia uh, in these strange times in an in a almost post-COVID America. In addition to your wonderful new book, The Burning, what else should people be reading? Uh, who wants to start? 
I'm happy to go first. Go on, Henry. Okay, so part of the reason that these racial conversations get stuck is because it because becomes uncomfortable to people and it becomes uncomfortable in people's bodies and nervous systems and they can't stay in the conversation. And so there's a really interesting book that I've read several times that is attempting to address this. It's called My uh, Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma Menachem. And it uh, speaks specifically to white people, specifically to black people, and there are uh, chapters dealing with police officers as well. So how we can learn to calm ourselves so that we can stay in these conversations long enough to hear each other. And by the way, I do wanna agree with Tim that there are very many mature adults in my community who are having conversations about race who are white. So I, I too do not wanna give up on them. Good, and that, that's an interesting uh, suggestion. I hadn't heard of that book, so we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get the author on. Uh, Tim, finally, what books are you uh, uh, suggesting people have a look at to make sense of the past or perhaps of the future in America? Well, uh, I want to recommend a book by my friend Scott Ellsworth, uh, Groundbreaking. It was recently published. Uh, uh, he is a white historian who was raised in Tulsa, first learned about the massacre as a busboy working with black busboys uh, in the 60s and devoted his life to unearthing the truth. And I think other than Don Ross and a few others, Scott deserves as much credit for bringing us to this place as anyone. The, the book is essentially, it tells the story of the massacre, the years after the massacre, but it also it's a memoir of uh, his journey, his personal journey with this story. And I, I just, uh, I think it's a beautiful book. And again, for uh, people, the white people in this country uh, to see an, another white person um, doing this kind of work, I, I you know, I just, uh, I hope everybody reads it. I think everybody should. Sounds like a beautiful book. Your book, um, Tim Madigan and Hillary Beard's book, The Burning, Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. I'm not sure if I'd call it beautiful, but it's incredibly important. And it has a kind of beauty in its own way. Uh, I want to thank you and congratulate you on the book. Both of you keep well, keep safe, and we'll have you back on at some point to talk more about facing up to the truth, education, and race in American history. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us.